Uh, well, we are uh, in our fourth and final Sunday of Advent, and um, and if you're anything like me, you're you're kind of like these candles, right? It's you start off strong, and then you kind of just have to limp to the finish line a little bit. You need a little help from your friends, so to speak, and that's what we're here truly for: is uh, the family of God gathering together to to garner strength from one another for the journey ahead, not just through Advent. Uh, but through life. This year's Advent theme, if you have not been with us or if you're in town for the Christmas week, um, truly is, to us a son is given. It's what we just talked about out of uh, Isaiah 9-6. We're going to complete that thought on Christmas Eve when we have our next gathering at 5 p.m. Not that you don't have that on your calendar, but in case you don't, there you go. Um, so we're going to complete that thought on Christmas Eve, but if you have not been with us or if you've forgotten, um, we are going through, we're kind of juxtaposing and combining these two thoughts. You've got these four names of the Messiah in 9-6 of Isaiah, uh, and then we've kind of coupled those with the four traditional themes of Advent. And so we've got Wonderful Counselor, and that gives us hope. We've got the Prince of Peace, which again goes with peace. We've got Mighty God, we talked about last week. Um, and our, our live stream was down, so many of you may not have heard that sermon, but we've got mighty God from last week giving us joy that God is in control of all things. And then today, everlasting Father coupled up with his love. Now, you and I would think that it's an easy connection between the love of God and the fatherhood of God, but I can tell you of 15 years of ministry that if there's one thing in the way, if there's one thing in the way of you actually seeing your God as a good father, it's this idea that he is a good father. And the one thing that's in the way of that is usually we've got really less than good fathers. If there's one thing in the way of seeing and believing in the goodness of God's fatherhood for us is that we see God through the lens of our earthly father instead of seeing our earthly father through the lens of of our everlasting Father. We switch it. It's just one person said that God created man in his image and then we returned the favor. That he created us in his image and that we then remade him in how we want him to be or how we expect him to be. And so this idea of the fatherhood of God is sometimes quite divorced from the love of God because of the lack of love that we got as kids or even as adults from our own uh, fathers and mothers. Mothers are not exempt from this, right? But here is kind of the hope for us, is that no matter how great your dad was, no matter how terrible your dad was, our everlasting father breaks those two molds in a way that helps us see him in a new and beautiful light of caring. You see, the, the, the beautiful thing about this theme and the journey that we've taken, although um, quite uh, inadvertently, we find ourselves now on the heels of a mighty and strong God that we talked about last week. And if we're not careful, we'll see that mighty and strong God as abusive, as neglecting, as something based on a lens of our own experience. And, and so what is it that will keep us from cowering under the strength and of the might of God that can do anything he wants whenever he wants? What will keep us from cowering under that strength, under that might, under that sovereignty? If it's nothing else, then it's the care and love 
of our Father. The string, the same mighty God that is over all things has the same amount of care and love and attentiveness that a Father has for us. That's the thing that keeps us from cowering under the strength and the sovereignty of God is that we know He cares. You see, we, I think we're all convinced that God is powerful. I think we're all convinced that he is, he's present, or at least we should be. That's Emmanuel. We'll talk, again, talk about it on Christmas, uh, Christmas Eve. That he's, he's present, he's powerful, uh, that he's, he's good, but we're not so convinced of his posture for us. And his posture isn't that he's against us. His posture is that he is for us. He's not just with us, that's, that's good and that's right and that's our hope is that he's with us. But while he's with us, his posture is for us. You see, that's the heart of a good father is that he's for us. In all things and in every way, his posture is that he is for us. So as we look at this kind of love that we're going to talk about that an everlasting father has, we're going to turn to a couple different places in, in, in Scripture and so the first place that I want us to turn, and really will be our baseline, is 1 John 3. If you don't know where 1 John is, it's towards the end of your Bible, or you could just click there on your app. But it's towards the end of the Bible, right near Revelation, with uh, just an N at the end of Revelation. And, um, and so that's where we're at, 1 John 3, verses 1, 2, and 3. And just to kind of get us going, I'm only going to read verse 1, and then we'll, we'll kind of trickle into 2 and 3 together. Verse 1 know what kind of love our Father has for us? Well, John wanted us to know what kind of love the Father has for us. And so he says something like this in 1 John 3, and he says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us? You see the, 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 the coupling of the fatherhood of God and the love of God. You see what kind of love the Father has given to us? That we should be called children of God, and so we are. And that's all I'm going to read for now. Because if we look into this, there's, this is hidden with gems that I just want to unpack for us slowly but deliberately. What kind of love has the Father loved us with? Number one, our Father's love is generous. You see what it says in 1 John 3, 1. To see what kind of love the Father has given. Has given to us. He is a generous God. He is not a demanding God, you see, every other religion, even today, is a demanding God. You want to know why there's scriptures that says, um, we love because he first loved us. Because he, there's a constant forgetting that if we're not careful, we think God loves us because of our performance. And that he, therefore, demands things from us that he actually does not demand. But see, we don't see this, and we may, we may get this a little bit twisted, but if we look back at the context in which Jesus was sent into the world, we see this huge contrast between the kind of gods that were amongst the people and the kind of God that Jesus came to give and to be given to for the people. Two examples that I want to draw out for us, and there would be many more. The Greco-Roman god, uh, like I don't know what it's called, the mythology, the whole pantheon of gods, they're all demanding. They all demand something from you so that you will get something in life, circumstantially. But in the Old Testament, there were two main gods that they were constantly at war with. One of them was Baal, and you see Baal as a very demanding god. And I'm going to be careful here about what I say, but I do want to, to draw this picture out for us. 
Baal would have been demanding sacrifices for the dead. He would have demanded sacrifices for seasonal rains. If you want to know more about Baal, we did a sermon series on the book of Jonah that unpacks this like beautifully. And I'm not trying to toot my own horn because it's something I just relayed to y'all that I've learned along the way. But go back on our website and go listen to those Jonah sermons and you'll see Baal uh, as in, in a new light. When you read the Old Testament, you'll go, okay, that's what they were fighting against. Baal demanded sacrifices for the dead. They demanded sacrifices for seasonal rain. And the way that you gave yourself, uh, the way that you made your sacrifices was through sensual practices and copulation with animals. And kids, if you're in the room and you don't know what copulation is, that's on purpose. copulation with animals. He also demanded self-mutilation. You see this in 1 Kings 18, that when Elijah goes against, in battle against the prophets of Baal, what do they do? They, they, they cut themselves. They mutilate themselves, the Bible says, until blood gushes out. Why are they doing that? To get the attention of their God. They, they understand that their God demands something from them. This is in complete contrast to the kind of God that Jesus came to be. But Baal is only one. If you go back in the Old Testament, you see another god that they did war against, and his name was Molech. If you know anything about Molech, that's where they literally gave their children for sacrifice to be burned to the god of Molech. It is a demand for that god. In order for you to live a good life now, you've got to give your kid to that god. And those are the things that Molech is intentionally uh, named in the book of Deuteronomy and Leviticus as evil, as heinous. Right? These are the gods that Jesus is sent into, the context with Jesus is sent into to be given as a sacrifice for our freedom. So like, that's the context that we're talking about here. When we talk about the generous love of God that he was given for us. It's in that dark, demonic context that Jesus is freely given. See what kind of love the Father has? It's in that context. It's in that craziness that the son was sent, though the gods demanded sacrifices for the dead. Jesus was sent to be sacrificed to die so that we might live. Though the gods demanded you to mutilate yourself in order to be heard by their God. Jesus was mutilated beyond recognition as a man, Isaiah 53 says. So that, and the creator of the universe then hears you as a result. Do you see his generosity? Though God's demanded your sons and your daughters to get the good life, Jesus was sent as God's only son to purchase for you eternal life. Do you see the generosity and the goodness of God that his posture could be nothing more than generous for us? It's no wonder then. It's no wonder then there are scriptures all throughout the New Testament that says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not all also with him graciously give us all things? Can you see the generosity and the posture of our Father? That he's not demanding of us that we would come to church and raise our kids right and do all the right things so that we can get the blessed life. He flips it on us and says, I've given you everything. If you would just look at the sacrifice of my son, now how will you live? Will you live stingy with your love? Will you live stingy with your treasure? Or will you live like I've lived for you, giving everything that I have so that we may live changed and transformed lives? 
if we forget the generosity of God, if we forget his posture for us as our father of a generous God, not everyone that when we come to him in our prayers, not everyone when we come to him with our needs, not everyone when we come to him we go, man, I don't know how we're going to make ends meet this week or this month. Does God go, I got nothing for you, I ran out. No, he's generous, absolutely and wholly generous. So I have to ask as we understand this first part of the generosity of God, do you know this? Do you believe in the generosity of our king, of our father, who would give his own son? And here's how you know if you believe in the generosity of God. Just look at how you steward what you treasure. Look at how you steward what you treasure. treasure. If you and I are, if you treasure some things, so let's just call it money, or you could call it love. Let's go with those two things that we could just kind of easily point out as things that we treasure. If we only give to the things that we think are deserving of our gift, if we only love, or translate it into love, if we only love the people that love us, we're in a religious system that we think God demands things from us. It's no wonder that Jesus came on the scene and said, you guys don't just love uh, your neighbor, the people that love you. Love the tax collectors. Love your enemies. We'll talk about that when we pick it back up in the Sermon on the Mount. Because he's, t- he's telling you right now, like, it's not equitable. The Christian life is not equitable. There's no way that you can do tit for tat or scorekeeping in the Christian life and be joyful and have the kind of love with which the Father has loved us. That's not how he loved us. 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9 says, for your sake, for your sake, the, the richest person in the universe, who's Jesus, became poor. He laid down his riches so that you might become rich. He became poor for your sake. And as you continue to go on in the scriptures, I'll just, I'll just point it out for us. Like This is a good teaching opportunity for us to think about generosity, especially as we come to the end of year and we start doing end of year giving things. And then in the next year, there's probably going to be more of that just coming your way. So just let me just drip a little bit of generosity teaching for us. If we're going to look at the, the fatherhood and the generosity of God, why is it that he calls us to be generous? He does that. So if we looked at 2 Corinthians 9, and this is one of those pieces of Scripture I'd love for you to turn to. If you look at 2 Corinthians 9, verses 6 through 11, do we live like God is generous? How do we know? By looking at what we steward and how we steward that which we treasure. And it comes straight out of 2 Corinthians 9, verses 6 through 11. Paul is writing to the Corinthian church about um, a financial gift that he's expecting them to give uh, to the church at Jerusalem. And he says this, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So this idea here is that if you only, like, if you only sow, like, I don't know, let's say 10% of your seeds and you hold back 90%, you're only going to expect 10% return. While your 90% is going to sow, be sown to something else and reap a, a harvest somewhere else. So he doesn't even get into the percentages, but this is just the mindset that we usually have. So he says, whoever sows sparingly, generously, will also reap sparingly and generously. Whoever sows bountifully, I love these words, will also reap bountifully. Verse 7, each one, though, don't be worried about guilt, each one must give as he has decided in his own heart. Friends, give what you have decided in your heart to do, not reluctantly or under compulsion. God could care less about your gift if it's out of guilt. 
or compulsion or because you think that I expect a certain amount from you. That does not please God. He loves instead, God loves a cheerful giver, a, a, a joyful giver, one that sees a need or just, has, just understands who God is and gives out of that reflection of how God has loved them. And God so is able, now look at the language here, look at all the alls, look at all the everies, look at the, the kind of God that God is, not demanding things from you, but instead giving things to us. Look at, let's continue on in verse 8. And God is able to make how much grace abound to you? All of it. All grace abound to you. So that in having some sufficiency, all sufficiency. In some things, all things. Sometimes, at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Verse 10, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. Don't let TV preachers hijack scripture from you. That somehow you've heard this and you go, oh, it must be bad. No, this is scripture and it's good and it's right. You will be enriched in every way. Some ways, and I'll be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. You see, generosity comes after understanding the generosity with which Jesus has loved us. And then when we're gener generous towards others, whether it be the church or whomever is in need, which both of those things should be a part of how you give. Like whoever we're generous towards, what does it produce? It produces thanksgiving to God in those people. It produces worship. It produces praise. It produces a harvest, truly, of righteousness. These are the things that God wants for us. So just a little teaching about the generosity of God, his posture for us, and then what he calls his people to do generously. Because he will give all things to us in every way, at all times, for all sufficiency. He is not lacking in his vat of grace for us if we think somehow we are lacking. So if we are not generous with our love, if we're not generous with what we have and what we treasure, it truly does reflect our misunderstanding of the kind of love with which God has loved us. Instead, God does not demand from us, for us, from us but gives freely. He has given this kind of love to us. That's number one. Number two, not only that our Father's love is generous towards us, that he gives to us, but our Father's love is relational. Let me go back to verse one. See what kind of love the Father has given to us? That we should be called children. And not just any children, but children of God. If you read the rest of 1 John, he is very black and white. If you want to know what it looks like to love God with your life, go read 1 John this week as you lead up to the coming of Christ on Christmas Eve. Because what you'll find out is this gracious thing that we talk about all the time, about being in the family of God, that God is our Father, therefore we're his family, is a special relationship with him. Because he says in the rest of 1 John, you're either a child of God, the Father, the generous God, or the child of the devil who demands things from you. And, and, and that's the choice that's before us. It's either, it's either light or dark. And that's what the language is in 1 John. But our God, 
has made his love obvious. He says, see what kind of love. Let's make it obvious for them that we are called children of God, and so we are. This is a part of our identity which God gives all believers, and it is a special relationship when you compare it to the kind of relationship that God has with the rest of the world. It's a special relationship when compared to the kind of relationship he has with the rest of the world. Look at, let's keep going in verse 1, 1b, so to speak. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Do you see it? Do you see the significance and the special relationship that, that, that we have as the family of God that the, the world around us does not have. It is completely distinct, and there's going to be friction. Our relationship is different than the world's relationship with God. Um, I don't know if you know uh, who Carl Lentz is. Anybody? Raise your hand. Carl Lentz. Okay, that's maybe 10% of us, maybe five. All right. He was the Hillsong New York City pastor. And he got fired recently during Corona because he was unfaithful with his wife. This is all online. He's admitted to this. This isn't gossip. This is the truth. And so he was fired um, because he was unfaithful to his wife and because of some other things that, he, that they're investigating in Hillsong, New York City. And there was an article written about Carl Lentz and his fall from being truly a celebrity pastor. And this article was written from a non-believer's perspective. And this was the end of the article that I want to pass along to us as Oh, let's just call it motivation, shall we? This is what a non-believer says about one of the most influential pastors in our country for the, probably the last 8, 10 years. He says this, if someone has a faith worth following, I feel that their beliefs should make me feel uncomfortable. Y'all feeling that? If someone, a non-believer, looking at a pastor and as a believer, as a church that followed that pastor, if someone has a faith worth following, I feel that their belief should make me feel uncomfortable for not doing what they do. If they share 90% of my lifestyle and my values, then there is nothing especially inspiring about them. Instead of making me want to become more like them, it looks very much as if they want to become more like if that is not an indictment on the American church, I don't know what is through the lens of a non-believer. But friends, we are, we are the children of God. And that means something wholly and entirely different than what the world calls God. They may have an appreciation for him from afar as if we have an appreciation for our favorite baseball player or basketball player, not James Harden, or football player. Right? We may have an appreciation for that person from afar, but we can't ever have a relationship with that person. If I walked up to them at a party and I go, dude, James Harden, you're my boy. I know all about you. He goes, I don't know you. Get away from me. My people are not your people. Get on. It would be different. But instead, the God of the universe calls us his children, his people, his sons, and his daughters. Now, that may have lost a little shine in your life. So, because it may have, let's just revisit one of the most beautiful pieces of Scripture there could ever be in Ephesians 1. So then, now turn there with me to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. Many of us want to deny the realities that are written within Ephesians chapter 1. 
but it's the scriptures. And I'm here to tell you, it's beautifully written and unbelievably good news for our souls. Because this is what we know. As I was talking about this with my daughter who was home for unknown reasons during finals week of middle school. I, what is this, by the way? What, that they let your kids go home during finals week and you just get to say you don't want to take the final and go home? What is this? Is this some corona trick? That wasn't possible whenever I was in middle school. Anyways, nonetheless, my child was home and we were having this conversation about the love of our father. And she said, you know, it's because Jesus was sent to die on the cross. And I said, that's half of it. But there's so much more. There's so much more. That yes, Jesus' death on the cross made it so that we could have a relationship with him. But the Father did all things so that we would have a relationship with him. Now y'all aren't hearing me. I feel like I need to have a handheld mic and somebody like playing the, the, the organ behind me on that one. I'm going to say it again. Jesus' death on the cross made it so that we could believe in him. But the Father did all things possible and necessary so that we would believe in him. Now let's check that out. We know about Jesus' death on the cross, but not all of us would believe or ascribe to all the things that he did so that we would believe in him. Look at Ephesians 1, verse 4. Blessed be the God and Father. Blessed be him. Let's, let's give blessings and praise and honor and glory to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with some spiritual blessings. No, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. How? How is it? What kind of blessings has he given us? Verse 4. I'm sorry, I started in 3. My bad. Even as he chose us in him. He chose us. When did he choose us? When, when he saw us and decided that we were going to choose him, and so he was like, oh, okay, they like me, so I'll choose them. No. Before the foundation of the world, before Genesis 1, if you think that was millions of years ago, it was before that. If you think it was like eight to 10,000 years ago, it was before that. He chose us in him, in the beloved, in Christ. When he looked out, and it says, right, in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless. That's another thing that he did for us, that we were holy and blameless. In him, he predestined us for adoption. Those that believe, this was never a doubt in God's mind. He predestined it for us. He chose beforehand. He determined before the foundation of the world. Uh, Romans 9 would say, before we did good or evil. And he compares it to Jacob and Esau. Before any of that ever happened, God had it figured out long before we were ever on the earth. That's going to blow your mind when you start thinking about the kind of love with which God loves us, that he would have you in mind, your personality, your story, everything about you, and he brought you into his family, choosing you, predestining you for holiness, for blamelessness, for all the things that he would give us as children of the good and pure and right Father. Let's keep reading in Ephesians, right? He predestined us for adoption. That means we were orphans. And if you're an orphan, something went wrong. Something went wrong early on for there to be an orphan on the, in the world. And what went wrong but the fall for us, for every person on the planet, we're either orphaned, we have no father, we have no mother spiritually, or we are brought in, adopted into the fatherhood, into the family of the God of the Bible. Not the God of Baal who demands those things from you. Not the God of Molech who demands those things from you. Not the God of any other thing that demands things from you, but a God who is generous, 
so generous that he had you in mind before the foundation of the world. He adopted you to himself as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ. Why? According to the purpose of his will. Because he wanted to. It was in his nature to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. That's Jesus. Verse 7. In him, he keeps going with these spiritual blessings. In him, we have redemption, meaning we have been bought back from death through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will. This thing was something that was totally hidden for all mankind, for all time. But now in Jesus, it's been revealed to us according to his purposes, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Do you see the kind of love with which God has loved us to bring us into the family of God? This was no accident. This was the eternal, beautiful plan of a God who has all things planned out for all of eternity. Mighty God, wonderful counselor, prince of peace. Why is he those things? Because he's got it all worked out from the end to the beginning. I gotta take a break after that. Ephesians 1, get me worked up every time. He didn't just send his son to die. He did everything necessary so that we might see the sacrifice for what it truly is. God in the flesh dying for rebels, for sinners, those who would never truly appreciate all the things that he's done for us until we get to see him face to face. That's number two. Number three, not this that our Father's love is generous, not this that our Father's love is relational, bringing us into this family, changing our identity as orphans and now sons and daughters. That, that's, it says, and that's what we are. Verses two and three tell us then that our Father's love prepares us for eternity. Our Father's love prepares us for eternity. Let's read verses two and three out of 1 John. We're back there now. Beloved, we are God's children now. He, he repeats it. Now we're God's children, but it's not just for now. And what will be has not yet appeared. Oh, there's something coming, he says. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him as he is. And verse 3 says, And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. If we went up a few verses at the end of chapter 2, what you would find is that there's all of this is a view that Jesus is coming back. And he says this in verse 28 of chapter 2 of 1 John. And now little children, do you see the language? Abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. You see, the Father's love isn't just so that it can transform us in the here and in the now and bring us into a family of God. And we just go, oh man, praise God for the shepherd that shepherds me and it makes me lie down in green pastures. That's true. But why? To prepare us for millions and billions and however many zillions of years of eternity. That's what a father's love does for us. So what do we do when we don't get our way? 
What do we do when we don't get what we think we need in the moment? If we forget that a father is caring for us, preparing us for eternity, we're going to throw a hissy fit, are we not? Yes, we are. So when we forget that the careful, specific, particular love of God is a caring love of God, if we don't get what we want, we'll throw a hissy fit. But if we believe in the careful, particular love of God as a caring father, then we won't, we won't freak out. We'll trust in his posture for us. We'll trust in his strength for us. That Yes, he could do all these things for us, but in his wisdom, because he's the wonderful counselor, he chose not to. And so if we can trust in his fatherhood, remember, it's everlasting father, that this everlasting father is an eternal father without end. I asked Moses, what does it mean that God's love, that, that his fatherhood is everlasting? And Moses, who's being six, looked at me at the, at the breakfast table one day this week, and he goes, it means he will never, not, he will never be dead. He will never not uh, live. Absolutely. His fatherhood will never expire in our lives. And not only that, but he fathers us from the end. Now, I want you to get that picture. He fathers us from what he wants us to be and knows we will be in the end. I don't know if you know, uh, remember a guy by the name of Colby Rasmus. He used to play for the Astros. And Colby Rasmus was traded to the Tampa Bay, Buc uh, Tampa Bay Buccaneers. That's the different sport. Uh, the Tampa Bay Rays, like long ago, or maybe I think that's where he was traded to. But anyways, while he was here, he, he gave testimony to his faith in Christ. Right? And one of the things that was happening in his life is that his marriage was a wreck. And why was his marriage a wreck? Because he said, in his own words, my dad raised me to be a baseball player. And that's all that mattered. And so anything that got in the way of me being a baseball player, which will include a marriage and children and the responsibilities therein, was no good. I didn't want to have anything to do with those things because I was raised with that end in mind. How much more the fatherhood of God, which is preparing us for eternity, he's raising us to be worshipers. He's not raising us to do anything else besides worship him for all of eternity. So he's going to do everything necessary. He's going to take us out and do drills with us. Like, what do you think life is? That's why, that's why sports are so important for our kids or th things like that, to help them identify these spiritual practices. Because God is doing the same thing for us in his fatherhood of us. He's going to do drills with us. He's going, to, he's going to put us through tests so that we are ready or not shrinking at his coming, as 1 John 2 would say. He has the end in mind. He has our end goal in mind to become more and more like Jesus. So everything that he allows now is to help us be transformed into the image of his son. Now that will either freak us out or we'll have a deeper trust in the fatherhood of God. Our God is raising us to be disciples of Jesus who worship God only. Not power, not comfort, not convenience, not anything else but the God who came to be generous and adopt us. This means that every pain, y'all listen now, this means that every pain, every disappointment, every grief, Every wound, every victory, and every unexpected turn in your journey is graciously and generously given to you with the wisdom and care from a father's wisdom gained from knowing how it forms us. Have seen and determined our final product for eternity. You guys getting that? 
serve a God who has, who has the might and power to do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, but a father who cares for his, ch- his children at every turn in the journey. So Advent, though, reminds us that we have a hope, right? Advent reminds us that we have a growing hope. That's what we've been doing every week when we light these candles one by one by one by one. That at first it starts with just one little light and it grows into four and eventually five coming up on Thursday night. It is a growing hope, expectation that Jesus is going to come. But there is no greater problem probably in our hearts than these days than a misplaced hope. I firmly believe, I don't know what the statistics are in this, some counselor will probably uh, give me insight into this after this, right? But a misplaced hope is probably the seedbed for most depression and anxiety and difficulty, mentally, is a misplaced hope. That's what Proverbs 13 says, that misplaced hope makes the heart sick or wounds it. So when we misplace our hope in smooth sailing and difficulties come, what's going to happen? But if we have a hope in the Prince of Peace over rough waters, then we're, what happens? Our hope isn't in smooth circumstances. Our hope isn't in, isn't in smooth sailing. No, our hope is in a God who reigns over it all and who's caring for us through it all. See the difference and you see the change that it puts in our hearts? So some of us may say, well, I, I, I claim scriptures like John 14, 14. John 14, 14 is pretty clear. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Isn't that why you end the prayer the way you end the prayer? In Jesus' name. As if that's some magical potion that we put on our prayers. It's in Jesus' name. I said in Jesus' name. Oh, you didn't say in Jesus' name? Didn't count. You don't do that with your kids? I do that with my kids. Didn't count. Just so you know. In Jesus' name. So we say that because we think somehow that that's somehow giving God's blessing to it, and that he's going to respond if we just go, in Jesus' name. Not the point of the scripture. Instead, according to the character and the will of God. That's what he's saying. So if we don't get what we think we need, perhaps it's not in the name of Jesus. And perhaps we need to reevaluate what we're asking. So it's not that he's stingy, and it's not that he's betraying us. Perhaps we're not having a clear understanding of the, the character and the will of our God. When he disciplines us, it's because good fathers discipline their children. That's what Hebrews 12 says. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Every father in here, every mother in here disciplines your child. If you don't, help me. When he exhorts us to walk in a way that denies ourselves, God knows it's hard. He's not putting that before you because you're going to want to do it one day. Well, I just haven't really gotten to that point where I just want to deny myself. No one ever has. He knows it's going to be impossible without you trusting in a God who says in 2 Peter 1, his divine power has granted us to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. He knows. So we end with this. The eternal fatherhood of God prepares us to meet him when he comes. And this kind of life, with one eye on our responsibilities and another eye on our response to a father that graciously gives all we need for the journey, that provides us hope. So friends, may we journey on with the certainty 
that the God of hope will certainly do what he has said he will do. How do we know? Because look at what kind of love the Father has given to us. That we are his children. And so we are. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we are grateful for your love for us. I pray it never gets old. In Jesus' name, amen.